And then uh, as we kind of get rolling this morning, I will let you know, I have been, uh, as we talk about thankfulness, I've been teaching or trying to teach my daughter, Autumn, my oldest daughter, how to pray. Um, I've been trying to teach her what it looks like to interact with God, to have a relationship with him, to talk to him, right, and that kind of stuff. And so oftentimes, it's interesting, you know, we talk about thankfulness, and uh, one of the things that we pray most often is, God, thank you, because we have so many things that we, uh, gosh, we don't deserve, uh, so many privileges and benefits because of where we live, right? We are well taken care of. All of this is true. And so oftentimes we're praying prayers of, of thankfulness. Thank you that we have this and this. And, and so oftentimes when we are praying and, and it's Autumn's turn to pray, the thing that she immediately thinks of is her toys, right? She is really thankful for her toys. Uh, it's funny, we go to Target and uh, as, you know, discerning parents, we invented this thing called a wish list because every time we go to Target, our daughter sees these things and we say, oh, you can add it to your wish list, right? We're not going to get it right now. So that's just the way we'll postpone your, your desires for this thing. But then we'll get to prayer time and she'll say, can I pray for the things on my wish list? And so, uh, so it's interesting that uh, that's kind of the direction that, that her heart goes in. And if we all know our own hearts, when we pray, we tend to bring kind of our desires to God first, right? So, so for many reasons, I'm like, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I teach her? How do I kind of curb this kind of immediate decision to bring my desires? Because, you know what? Like, I don't want my daughter to approach God as if he should fit her expectations, Right, like I don't want her to approach him as if like uh, God should just kind of uh, be inside the box that she has created as to what God is for. I want her to approach God with a heart that is open to his expectations. So this is what I know. Like I know that God wants to hear her heart. I know God wants her to be like very transparent with him. Uh, I, I, and I don't wanna kind of curb her freedom to come to God with anything, but God is not our sky genie right? Like he doesn't just like give us the things that we ask for. He's our God. That means like he's our Lord. He has plans and desires and concerns. And so this made me realize something as I have been trying to, to teach her how to pray and made me realize that I have to be intentional about how I model prayer for her. Why? Why? Well, uh, there's an impulse inside of her because I know it's inside of me too to subject God to her perspective, to lift herself up above God, to evaluate God based on her expectations, and to respond to him based on how well he scores inside of her rubric. And I know that because that's what I do with God, right? How she watches me interact with God will either reinforce that tendency in her or it will challenge it. And so the disciples, they watched Jesus as he prayed. They watched his example, and they said to Jesus, gosh, we've never seen anybody pray like this guy prays. Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? And Jesus modeled for them what it was to interact with God. How does he start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's striking that Jesus starts his prayer by referencing position. Right? He's referencing God's position. We don't come to God standing over him. We come to him as one whose name is uniquely set apart. He is our father, and his name is high above any other name. And then he says, your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's not, God, my father in heaven, let me tell you what I need from you. It's, 
God, let me learn your kingdom and your will and seek those things to be done here. So imagine that being your posture every time you approach God. Like, yes, you approach him as a dad. Yes, you approach him as intimacy. Yes, he wants you to be transparent with him. But ultimately, we are approaching him so that what he wants becomes paramount, right? His kingdom, his honor, his glory, his desires, because his name is the only name that is above all other names. Right, so today we are uh, taking the next step in a series called Reasons to be Skeptical. And what we are doing in the series is we are dealing with common objections to believing the Bible. And so what happens with these objections is that these objections over time turn into cultural mantras. And we talked about this last week. Cultural mantras are repeatable, sacred phrases that feel true. Repeatable meaning that uh, they're, they're very memorable, right? They're very accessible. We can hold on to them. They're sacred in the sense that they have a certain level of meaning within a culture. A culture almost reveres them as holy or accepted truth. And they, the phrases, they feel there's something inside of us that resonates with these phrases. And, and what happens is that these phrases get stated in relation to the Bible to cause us to cast doubt on the Bible. So last week, we looked at slavery. Uh, you know, the Bible condones slavery, therefore the God of the Bible must be immoral. And so we address that. If you want to go back to last week's sermon, I'd invite you to listen to it. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of take these cultural mantras apart. So I have three outcomes for us as we address this. Uh, the three outcomes are this. Number one, I want to strip cultural mantras of their power over you. Right? I want to kind of uh, remove them. The enemy wants to kind of enforce his power by taking these things that feel true and enforcing them on our hearts time and time again. The second outcome that I have is that I want to equip us with simple biblical responses that undermine these cultural mantras. Right? I want to give us the tools that, uh, so that we can engage in a world with people who hear these things and believe these things and we can actually interact with them and maybe have hopes of causing them to consider things they hadn't considered before. And uh, the third thing, the third outcome that I have is I want to increase our confident surrender to God and his word. Uh, after I... Um, after last week's sermon about slavery, I got to thinking and also just talking to people. And it's interesting that, that the issue that we have when we come to Scripture and we encounter these things is not just like with people who aren't Christians uh, and, you know, don't want to believe the Bible and so they come up with these reasons not to believe the Bible. What, what is actually true is that many of us in this room, as we read the Bible and we come to these certain passages and they grind against those cultural mantras, even we're saying, oh gosh, that thing that I'm reading right now, it's making me uncomfortable. Right? This thing in scripture that I'm reading, I don't, it doesn't sit well with me. And so what I want to do is as we go through this series, I, I want the Bible to sit better with us. Right? I want us to be able to receive scripture, to confidently be able to surrender to it. So what we are dealing with today, the reason for skepticism that we are dealing with today is this. The God of the Bible is a moral monster because he carries out genocide. The God of the Bible is a moral monster because he carries out genocide. This is, uh, people look at the various kinds of holy wars, the various ways in which God uh, allows his wrath to be carried out on certain peoples and times and places and said, God must be a moral monster because of the way that he destroys entire 
peoples. And so uh, if we could just kind of frame this through a series of questions, the first question would be something like this. Is genocide a terrible kind of evil? Absolutely. We would all hear that question, somebody say that question, and our immediate response would be, yes, of course it is. And what we would think of is we would think of something like the Holocaust, right? Because that's our, like, that's our most clear example. Or we would think of something like Rwanda. Or uh, current, like the People's Republic of China right now is uh, interning and enslaving the Uyghur Muslim people. They're doing forced sterilization on them. They're removing all of their cultural artifacts because they want to clean out every element of culture and enforce normal Chinese culture on those people. It's, it's genocide. Is that evil? Absolutely it's evil. It is an atrocity. The right thing to do is hold those responsible for such acts accountable to what they had done, right? So is genocide a terrible kind of evil? Yes, it is. Second question. Well then, does God eliminate entire people groups in the Bible? He also does that. Yeah, the skeptic says, the biblical God is a tribal God. He commands holy wars and favors his people over other people. So Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2 says this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, you must devote them to complete destruction. Show no mercy to them. Right? You got that? You have the reality that not only did he do that, but he also has destroyed entire cities. Genesis 19, 24, and 25. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So then... Uh, we have that. We have that example. He's destroying an entire city, an entire group of people in an instant. You add to that the fact that like God flooded the whole earth one time, right? Genesis 7, 17 through 23, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. And it says in verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted from the earth. We say, genocide is evil. We all agreed to it here in the room, right? In the first 19 chapters of the Bible, God had committed greater levels of what we call genocide than any of the people in our examples could begin to imagine. So the natural conclusion for the skeptic is then, isn't the God of the Bible a moral monster? This is how the line of thinking goes. And it impacts us as we read these passages, right? We are kind of thinking like this, or at least our hearts are thinking like this as we approach the Bible, so that when we read those passages, it makes us go, ooh, I don't like that. We feel uncomfortable. And the skeptic says, you know what? There's a reason you feel uncomfortable. Because you can't call a God who commits genocide good. So now, before we get too far, we need to say something. To evaluate God in this way is to approach him as needing to be subjected to our perspective. Right? It's to start from actually a place of distrust in relation to God. 
We're actually starting from a place of accusation, from a place of needing to put God kind of under our lens and to evaluate him. So my question, and the question that I would want to kind of even put in front of the skeptic is this, how willing are you to give God the benefit of the doubt? How willing are you to give God the benefit of the doubt? Because if you start with distrust, then what distrust does is it leads you into assumed guilt as you are evaluating God, which means if you are assuming guilt on the front end as you evaluate God, it doesn't matter what evidence is presented to you, you will have limited objectivity. You will not evaluate that thing truly because you're starting from a place of distrust. Like, just consider for a second. Is there some story about the God of the Bible that might give you a better starting place? Then instead of these stories, right? Maybe it's a story about Jesus. Maybe it's a story about God's rescue of his people out of the land of Egypt. Or maybe it's the story in Jonah where God saved the murderous Ninevites. Right? I'm not asking you to find a place that says, I trust him. I'm asking you to find a place that would lead you to change your question from one of accusation to one of discovery. Right? So I want you to change your question. I want all of us to change our question this morning from... How could God do that? And when we say, how could God do that? What we're doing is we're starting from a place of accusation. Change your question from how could God do that to why would God do that? Because if we change our question in that way, what, the way that we position ourselves now is not in a place where we're trying to accuse God, but we're, where we're trying to discover why he would do the things that he would do. So, uh, so, Just some preliminary uh, comments. These don't directly address this line of thinking, but they're very important. The first is is this. Uh, To call someone God, to use the title of God or to reference a being as God is to kind of assign to them a category higher than human. Right? You're, uh, you're saying that there is one who is other, that there is one who is smarter, there is one who is more just, there is one who is more powerful, there is one who actually sits above humanity. In fact, as we look at the Bible, the God of the Bible is sovereign. God is sovereign. What we mean when we say that is that he allows, ordains, or permits everything that happens. Right? That's the God of the Bible. There's not one thing that takes him by surprise. Nothing is too big for him to step in and stop. Nothing is beyond his reach. Nothing escapes his awareness. So as the Bible tells us God's story, it's telling us the story of one who kind of already is going to be beyond our understanding. Right? He allows, ordains, or permits everything that happens. He's bigger than we are, which means that there must be aspects of his character that are beyond our understanding. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. When we make decisions, when we as individuals, we as human beings, when we make decisions, what we do is we make them out of both our character and our capacity. Why am I speaking of making decisions? Well, because in the three examples that I gave, we witness decisions that God made to eliminate people. And in the, so if we're thinking of uh, everything that God allows, ordains, or permits, these decisions that we witness, they fall into the ordained category. God decided to do them. So character and capacity inform our decision-making. In Revelation, the God of the Bible had uh, been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He appears to the apostle John, and it's this awe-striking sight of Jesus. And, and this is what Jesus says when he appears to John in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. It says, when I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. There are two things that I know about Jesus. He is authorized to create life and end life. And he sees, number two, he sees everything that has been and is and will be with pristine clarity. His capacity is beyond my capacity. It's beyond me, right? That's, if I'm calling somebody God, what I am at that point acknowledging is that they have a greater capacity than what I have. And if he sees what I, what I can't see, if he has authority over life beyond what I can comprehend, then perhaps he has a grasp of what is good and right that is also beyond me, right? So then perhaps his character is beyond my grasp of good character, right? If that's true, his capacity is beyond my capacity, then perhaps his character is beyond my grasp of character. So for us to start considering this, we have... Uh, kind of to do some very similar work that we did to last week. Uh, we need to get rid of some baggage that we have as we come into this discussion. Uh, and then we'll kind of grasp the story of Scripture, why Scripture tells us God would do these things, and then finally we'll provide us some simple responses to interact with the perspective. So part of the reason that Scripture tells us God would do these things has everything to do with the wickedness of the people who are on the receiving end. Right, a hundred percent of the time in these acts, the, the wickedness of people is at play. Right, so here's just something to remember as we walk through scripture. When God ends life, he is always carrying out justice against evil. When God ends life, he's always carrying out justice against evil. So in the flood, we catch kind of a glimpse of what's happening. Uh, generations kind of multiplied through uh, people who were fallen. They were started murdering each other. Uh, vengeance entered into human interaction. You have evil and oppression and uh, subjecting of the vulnerable. Until you read in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention, that's not some of the intentions, that's not most of the intentions, that is every intention of his heart was only evil continually, or in some translations, only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. We have no category or understanding of the level of evil to which this is referring. But this is the trigger for God to set apart Noah and the beginning of his plan to flood the earth. Right, so that's, that's the first piece of that. The, the second piece is we look at this uh, story in Sodom and Gomorrah that's presented. What we learn of Sodom and Gomorrah is that it was a wicked place where you had acts of rape and murder and evil that were just the norm within that place, evil done towards the strangers. So um, people get indicted in the Bible for lacking hospitality, and Sodom and Gomorrah did not just lack hospitality, they had like anti-hospitality. So which means when you cross the boundaries of their city, they didn't just not welcome you, they did evil things to you. 
right? They uh, treated you horribly, uh, and uh, we read stories of the kinds of horribleness that occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah. People came in. The residents worked together to plot the kinds of evil that they can commit to those people for their own pleasure. And so what does God do? God tells Abraham his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And the interaction that Abraham has with God is very interesting. Genesis 18, 23 and 24. Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And God says, you know what, Abraham? If there are 50 righteous people there, I'll spare the place. And then they go back and forth. Well, Abraham goes, what about 40? And he's like, yeah, for 40, I'll do it. What about 30? Yeah, for 30, I'll do it. What about 20? Yeah, for 20, I'll do it. How about 10? God says, even for 10. I would do it. And what's interesting is that there was one righteous person and his family with him. And so what happens is that God goes in to save, sends people in to save that one righteous person. His name was Lot, which by the way, as we evaluate what the word righteous means, Lot was not a good guy. I don't know if you read the story about Lot, know his story at all. He was not a good guy, right? But in comparison to the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, God calls him righteous, right? And he saves Lot out of that place. And then he judges Sodom and Gomorrah because of its extreme evil. Finally, let's consider the land of Canaan, the land that God was sending his people to overtake. Uh, God appears to Abraham. What's interesting, uh, as Abram is journeying through Canaan, what he discovers is that this is the place that God is going to give us, to give this family that he is, uh, you know, calling after me, right? Uh, And so in Genesis 15, 12 through 16, actually starting in verse 13, it says this. It says, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Right, so this is talking about the slavery that they're going to experience in Egypt. And then it says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Right? I mean, so just go with me for a second. Imagine you walk into a town. Like, uh, we don't have cars, we don't have really roads to speak of, but we have villages that have popped up all all over the place, and you're uh, kind of walking through the desert, and you come up on a town, and you walk into the boundaries of that town, and you happen to walk into that town in the middle of a religious ceremony. At the center of that town, you see a brass statue that is kind of like a combination between a man and a cow. And uh, that statue, there's this big kind of pit in that statue's belly. It's, it's fire. Fire is burning in the middle of that statue. And what you see uh, in that statue is that the, the hands of that statue are kind of lifted out. They're, they're extended like this. Uh, and, and then you see every person in this town, all of the activity in this town is centered around this statue that has fire in its belly and its hands are extended like this. And then uh, Uh, As you get closer, what you see is that uh, there's actually a priest up on kind of the podium at the front of that statue, and that priest is holding a newborn baby. And that priest takes that baby and places it on the hot brass hands of the statue with every person around, not like being concerned, but actually celebrating this action, dancing around this action, chanting about this thing. And while this is all happening, while that baby burns alive as an offering to their God. 
that is the kind of people that the Canaanites were. That's who the Canaanites were. This is one example of the extreme kinds of evil that were practiced in the occultic traditions of the people in Canaan. And with those people, God said, I have to wait until their wickedness gets to a certain level. And then once their wickedness gets to a certain level, then I can send you in because then it will be justifiable to utterly destroy those people, to wipe them out. And 400 years later, God sent Israel to utterly destroy the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Why do we emphasize any of this? Why would I take time to talk about the atrocity of what Canaanite demon worship looked like? It's because we have never seen the kind of evil that God judged in the Old Testament. We've never witnessed it before. We have no categories for the levels of evil. Even evil that is done in other parts of the world today is tempered by the fact that there are countries surrounding those nations that are trying to uphold something uh, that resembles human rights. Right? And so there's always this risk of, well, if I do something too evil, somebody might uh, cause me to be accountable for it. Right? That kind of accountability did not exist in that day. Right? So we truly do not appreciate the extent to which actually God has protected us from that level of evil. In fact, a major piece of the story of Scripture is God instilling stop gaps to make sure that evil does not progress too far in humanity. Right, so, so we start with evil on the earth. Uh, the evil, there's only evil in the thoughts of men's hearts continually. And so what does God do? Well, he floods the earth, but he saves Noah. But then Noah's family, they start kind of rebuilding and uh, you see the generations go forth from Noah. And then we run in this thing, uh, this thing called the Tower of Babel, which what is that except humanity trying to lift itself up uh, back to God to prove that we don't need God. And God, to protect humanity, split the languages of the people so that we couldn't communicate with each other because if we can't communicate with each other, then it limits the power of our evil to grow fast and strong. And then from there, God puts the presence of Israel in the middle of uh, these other nations and you have from Israel kind of the influence of the Jewish law and then he instills kings who become viewed as uh, and at one degree, wise people, right? The wisdom of Solomon was so well known to the nations around that other people wanted to come and get Solomon's wisdom to influence their land. That is a grace of God, again, limiting the, the spread and the power of evil in the world. And then you have Christ coming into the middle of Roman territory. Like when Christ comes to earth, he comes in the middle of Roman territory. And what do you have in, in Rome? Like you have the Colosseum, you have Roman torture, you have the way that Roman power is abused. You have Roman ruthlessness towards people. All sorts of evil things happening to the poor and the vulnerable. And what happens after Christ dies and he rises again and he sends the Holy Spirit? Then you have Christians who start to influence Rome. Christians start to inform what it looks like to treat people with dignity. Christians start to spread their influence and their message throughout the world. Uh, people start trusting and following Jesus with this message of love God and love your neighbor. And then Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to people and that limits evil to an even greater degree. So if you're a Christian right now, give some thought to the number of protections from outright evil that God has placed in your life throughout his work in history. 
You're born into a society today. If you were born in the United States or if you live here now, our society is heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian ethics. No matter how hard we try to push God out, God's influence will always remain, right? We have laws that restrain our worst tendencies. We have heavy consequences for wrongdoing. We're being taught in school what it means to respect other people. That is not a common lesson that people have taught throughout history for what it's worth. And then on top of that, you talk about receiving the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit. None of that restraint existed in the ancient world. Humanity was left to go unrestrained. So now I just want you to play a thought game with me for a second. Imagine uh, kind of the worst tendencies in yourself with me. Like the, if you know that, that there were something to go unrestrained ins- inside of you, some kind of sin, that if the, the Lord let the gates off of it, it would just go crazy. So imagine your most selfish tendencies. Then imagine living in a place where there were no consequences for you to pursue those selfish tendencies. Then imagine that you watch your neighbor and you, you, you see your neighbor do the same thing that you want to selfishly pursue. And then imagine it's not just your neighbor, it's actually every person in your neighborhood that's pursuing that selfish tendency. And imagine it's not only every person in your neighborhood doing it, but they're cheering you on as you do it. Imagine worshiping then false gods that are interested in helping you promote that selfish tendency inside of yourself. And then you can begin to imagine how evil was unleashed and unrestrained in the ancient world. Evil in humanity was unrestrained and it produced horrifying results. And you would be hard-pressed to find another person in the Western world who wouldn't look at that evil and say, goodness, something should be done about that. The impulse is inside all of us. We would say, those people need to be called to account. So yeah, we can't begin to comprehend the level of evil that God was bringing justice to when we read these biblical passages. So the first kind of why, we have two whys behind God's actions in Scripture that actually help us to offload our baggage as we uh, encounter them. So why would God do that? Why would God eliminate people groups? Number one, he is carrying out justice against evil. That is the first and clearest reason. And then number two, He's preventing further global corruption, right? He is doing something to provide a stopgap of protection for sin just run rampant in the world. Okay, so then the skeptic says, all right, I get it. Sure, I agree with that. Maybe, maybe you don't, that's okay. But why the women and children? I I see where you're going, but why then does God give commands related to the women and children? Like in 1 Samuel 15, verses 2 and 3. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Why did God authorize Israel to carry out this kind of full-scale tribal warfare? Why would God prioritize Israel over other nations to the extent that he would be commanding the killing of women and children for their sake? 
Why value Israel to the point that he would put others to death? Why give them what already belonged to other people? And to that, I, I just want to make a point similar to the one that I made last week. God's plan for the healing of the nations was to bring a Messiah. His plan for bringing a Messiah was about preserving a nation, and through that nation would come the Savior of the world. So everything that God does that he, for Israel is an act of grace towards Israel. God protects Israel. He protects uh, from the false worship of the other nations by commanding Israel to destroy all of their objects of worship. When they go into that place, destroy every object of worship that they have. He protects them from the influence of kids who quite honestly, kids, when they're, when, if they understand that their parents were taken from them, they're gonna be interested in pursuing and understanding who the parents were that were taken from them. They're wanna, gonna wanna go discover the things that they worshiped. They're wanna, gonna, gonna wanna avenge their parents to some degree, right? So there's, there's kind of this reality that even the kids would have influenced Israel towards the things that they influenced that God was trying to prevent within Israel. He physically protects Israel from the attacks of other nations by making examples of the enemies who attack Israel, right? That's what's happening with the Amalekites. The Amalekites came against Israel, and so God is making an example of them to say, no, they cannot come against you. This is what happens to nations that oppose you. And then he does all of this to preserve an Israelite culture and religion that would be able to produce a Messiah who would be the savior of the world. So why would God do that? Number one, he's carrying out justice against evil. Number two, he's preventing further global corruption. And number three, he is preserving a people through whom a savior would come. These are the reasons that scripture gives us. Now, here's the thing. Y'all, we talked about it at the beginning. God is beyond our understanding. Right, He may have other reasons that we cannot begin to comprehend for doing the things that he did. But these are the reasons that he gives us. This is what we come to understand. So I want to then just give us some simple responses to the skeptic, both the skeptic that lives inside of you and the skeptic that you encounter in your interactions. And I want to start this by saying, as we engage in these conversations, I just want to tell you, like questions for us are infinitely better than statements. Questions for us are infinitely better than statements. Our interactions with skeptics, they're primarily about relationships. They are not about us trying to prove someone wrong or crush their worldview or destroy their perspective. We are trying to build and preserve a relationship by which somebody might come to acknowledge the truth that Jesus is Lord. Right, so questions bring people to consider things they may not have considered before, and we want to create conversations and not crush people with our perspective. So number one, Here's a question. Should God stop evil or should he let it go unrestrained? Right, because that's, you're kind of forced to deal with that question. The same mind that says God is evil because he wipes out people groups. It doesn't matter what they did. God, it's just simply true that God is evil because he wipes out entire people groups. That same person, that, the same mind, the same way of thinking that would say that is also inclined to say God is evil because he did not put an end to the thing that I find evil. Those two things do not compute with each other. They cannot be held together at the same time. Like when you dig down, this is a way of thinking that thinks it can judge who lives and who dies more rightly than God can. At the end of the day, that's what you're dealing with. 
right? So, so that's a fair question. Should God stop evil or should he let it go unrestrained? At the end of the day, like I'm inclined to leave that decision in God hand, God's hands, what he's going to do and what he's not going to do. Uh, second question is this. If God can be judged by you, is he really God? If God can be judged by you, is he really God? Now, if you or the person that you're talking to is a skeptic, the answer that you provide to this question is probably going to be no, right? To be fair, like, no, he's not God. That's the reason I'm even coming up with this argument. I don't believe in God. But then, of course, there would be no room for any God at all. Most people who make these kinds of arguments and kind of sit with the Bible, their point is to say, I'm agnostic. I don't know what is out there. We can't possibly know what is out there. I just know that Christians can't know what is out there, right? But then, of course, to have this perspective, to try to stand in judgment of God, that's, that's not agnosticism. To be agnostic is to be without knowledge. To say that I can stand in judgment of God is to say that I know better than God does, right? It would not be agnosticism. In fact, that's like full-blown atheism because in that perspective, the all-knowing, all-powerful being in this equation is me, right? Uh, that that, that all-knowing, all-powerful being, it should not be, on my, be beyond my capacity to reason, the all-powerful being should not be beyond my understanding of right and wrong. And so if God himself, if this thing that you call God can be subjected to and evaluated by your perspective, then the reality is your perspective has no room for the existence of anything that is like God. And in fact, you are claiming to have a more certain knowledge of who God is than even Christians claim to have. Right? At that point, you know more certainly what is true about the reality of the world than Christians can know. Because what do we say? We say we only know what God has told us. And there are hosts of things about God that we do not know because he has not told us. He is beyond our understanding. Number three. What would it take for you to give God the benefit of the doubt? And this one is genuinely for conversation. What kind of actions would you need to see from God? What aspect of his character would you need to see to be open considering that he might actually be justified in doing the things that he does? Would you be open to hearing other stories about God and his grace and his compassion and his mercy and letting those influence your perspective? Would you be willing to actually consider things about God that you had not considered because you were limited in your perspective, because you were trying to hold him on trial, would you give him the benefit of the doubt? So what? So what? Uh, number one. Church, I want to encourage us to trust that God knows even when we don't. So Rahab witnessed the destruction of her city at the hands of God and God's people. And Rahab trusted God. What was God doing? What was God doing in Rahab's life that Rahab had no idea he was accomplishing? Well, through Rahab, God was going to bring the Messiah through her lineage. She couldn't see that at the time, but she trusted that God knew what he was doing even when she didn't know what God was doing. And scripture is full of stories who saw God do things that they didn't understand and perhaps even things that they felt weren't right, but they trusted him even when they couldn't see the full picture. Right, so trust that God knows even when we don't. Number two, the real surprise 
is not that God kills, but that he has mercy. The story of scripture, the surprise of the story of scripture is not that God would kill, but that he has mercy. Right? In light of unrestrained human sinfulness, God is unfathomably patient. He, he is just waiting. He's patient. Like the picture of the Bible that we have of humanity is that there's something exceedingly dark inside of us that is just waiting to be unchained, that is looking to be justified, and, and that finds opportunity that when there are no consequences for lawlessness, when there are other people around us doing the same things, when our circles call good evil and evil good, it's a wonder that God lets it persist in any way whatsoever. And the wonder of Scripture is that he chooses actually to withhold his judgment that he waits, and that he still kind of in the deepest longing of his heart actually tells us not just that he's waiting and that he's withholding judgment, but that he still wants relationship with us. And so, number three, God ordained the murder of Jesus for your forgiveness. God sent Jesus to show his compassion to love, to heal, to bless people. Right? He goes around, he performs miracles, he teaches the things of God, he extends compassion to the lowly and those who have been disenfranchised. He, he meets with people who people had excluded from society and, then, uh, and he does all of this and at the end of the story, he goes and he gets murdered in a conspiracy between Rome and the Jewish religious leaders. And this was actually God's plan. Right, so that with Jesus' death, he might pay the price of justice that we ourselves were due to pay. And through Jesus' death, right, that he ordained from the beginning of the world, like from the foundation of the world, he would extend forgiveness and relationship to many people who were incredibly undeserving. And then Jesus would rise from death, proving that he was a powerful to accomplish these things. So what would it take for you to give God the benefit of the doubt? Would he, putting himself on the line for human sinfulness, be enough? I don't know. But I do know that that's what he did to not just extend mercy, to not just withhold his judgment, and not just be patient with human sinfulness, but to actually extend grace and welcome and freedom and forgiveness and relationship to people who do not deserve it. And you know what? I find myself as we talked about Thanksgiving this morning, I find myself incredibly grateful that he did it. Right? Because knowing what is inside me that is looking for excuses to be unleashed on the world, that he would yet pursue me, that he would yet die for me, that he would let yet choose to cleanse me by the power of his blood, that he would yet give me the Holy Spirit, that he would have fellowship with me, that he would be joined together with me, that I could be in his presence and not be destroyed by him because of the weakness of my soul and the brokenness of my soul and the sinfulness of my being. That he would do any of that for my sake makes me extremely grateful. And my prayer for you is if you do not know Jesus this morning, that you would just give God the benefit of the doubt and allow Jesus to extend to you this invitation into the presence and the welcome and the love of a God who is reaching out to you. Would you pray with me, please?
Lord Jesus, it's not my expectation that any uh, logical argument, any reasonable way of me putting together ideas is going to be enough to compel a person who is inclined to put you on trial. Lord, I don't know the, the, the number of relationships that the lives of people in this room touch, but I know that there are many in this room who desire to see people in their spheres of influence come to know you. Lord, in knowing that, I pray for the hearts of the skeptics in our spheres of influence. Lord, that you would make them open to giving you the benefit of the doubt and that you would equip us the, to be the kind of people who can meet with them in that space to ask them questions and to help them discover what it is that you're actually doing in the world. Father, would you increase our confident surrender to you? That when we see things in scripture that we don't understand and that even tend to rub us the wrong way, Lord, that we would recognize you know it all. You have the the best picture of things, and we don't have that. But you've shown yourself to be trustworthy to us. So Lord, teach us to trust you more. These things we ask in Jesus' mighty name.